Okay, so we're going to be reading Luke 19, 1 through 10. Oh, it's right here too, great. Okay. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd. He was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be with a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I have given half my goods to the poor. I have taken everything, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come into this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You may be seated. Yeah, thank you, Haley. That's great. So good. Love of neighbor. Um, Two other things. Prayer tonight at 6 p.m. here at the building. Um, And also we're having a harvest party meeting directly following service. So um, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. Uh, We've dedicated this whole year to the year of biblical literacy. What that means for us is that we are reading the Bible collectively as a church to know firsthand what it teaches and in order to be shaped by God's word. And along with that, we're teaching through the Bible on Sunday mornings. We're looking at uh, the main themes, the main message, and the characters. And right now, we're in the middle of a five-week series on the character of Christ. Now, uh, in weeks past, we considered Jesus the teacher. And then last week, we considered uh, Jesus the healer. When we looked at Jesus the teacher, you remember we talked about Jesus being our rabbi, that this was the understanding of the first century, is that Jesus wasn't just one of many teachers that you would kind of listen to and pull from, receive from, but you came under his yoke of teaching, and you were with your rabbi, you became like your rabbi in order to do what your rabbi did. And so when Jesus, uh, when we become Jesus' disciples. This is the call on our lives as well, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus in order to do what Jesus did. And last week, as I said, we considered Jesus the healer, looking at how Jesus uh, was a miraculous healer and how everywhere he did, everywhere he went and whoever he healed, he was bringing the kingdom of God to bear upon the world and upon those individuals. He was pushing back sin and sickness. But we looked at in Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, how Jesus is actually doing a deeper work. He's doing a work of healing from Sin from the destruction that sin has brought into our lives and into the world. And so this morning, continuing in this series, we're going to look at Jesus, the Savior. And has, as it's been mentioned uh, in the past weeks, there are many titles that uh, we give to Jesus of Nazareth, right? We give him the title Messiah. We give him the title Lord, Son of God, Son of Man. And these titles have the habit of just kind of rattling off um, 
our tongues are just kind of like blowing through our brain. And many times we don't stop to think about what it means or what it says about Jesus and what it means to our lives personally and what it is being offered to the world in these titles of Jesus. So Jesus' name, as we're talking about Savior, means Yahweh is salvation. And so even in his name, we have this idea of Savior. Remember, Jesus, this is who he is. He is Yahweh in the flesh in a way that we don't fully comprehend or fully understand. This is who he is. He is the Lord who brings salvation. He is the Savior. Now, the title Savior, though very common to us for Jesus, is actually only used two times in the Gospels. There's a time uh, when Jesus, remember, he speaks to the woman at the well, and she goes and she tells the rest of the Samaritans, come, meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then they come and they listen to Jesus teach, and afterwards they say, listen, we, we heard what you said, but now we have seen for ourselves this man is indeed the Savior of the world. And then there is one other passage Uh, And it comes upon the lips of the angel at the announcement of Jesus' birth. Remember, he said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. Now, Jesus actually does not use the term Savior to refer to himself. Uh, But he does use this word to describe his mission, to save. Remember in Luke 19.10, as we just read it, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, came to seek and save the lost. And then again in John three seventeen, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this title, Savior, and even this, this term that Jesus uses, Save, this actually was not very common in the Gospels, which is, which is interesting. But it was especially in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his eternal salvation. Remember, rescued to be part of the kingdom of God, as we were looking at last week, that his followers begin to refer to him as the Savior and as salvation being found in no other name but the name of Jesus. I was looking at um, Titus, which is one of my favorite epistles, and Paul, in this very short little letter, it's three chapters long, he uses the title Savior six times alone. He just keeps saying it. He, He just wants to remind Titus, God is the Savior of all men. Jesus Christ came to the world. He's the Savior. He keeps reiterating this. Now, This became such a well-known title for Jesus of Nazareth that the early church came up with an acrostic. We know it very well as the Jesus fish, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? The ichthus, right? We see it on people's bumper stickers. Now they have Darwin fish that are like eating, you know, the other fish. Now there's like all this. It's crazy. It's ridiculous, right? So many fish doing so many different things. I can't even keep track of what's going on. But originally... Ichthus, it actually means fish in Greek, so that's why they use this symbol. But the symbol was used as an identifier for uh, fellow Christians during the time of persecution. What would happen is if you would meet in the street, maybe at the location where the church was meeting, one person would draw half of a fish, and the other person would draw the other half. And it was like, okay, like, I know, you know. Like, we're in the same, yep, okay, good, we're safe. But the term itself stood for... Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And it was a statement of belief of the early church. Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, 
our Savior. So we've looked at Jesus, our teacher, Jesus, our healer, Jesus, our Savior. Now, I, I wonder what we think of when we use this common Christian phrase, I'm saved. And we say this all the time. And I think it's a really funny thing to say, only because we don't actually ever explain what it means. Oh, they're saved. You know, when I got saved, oh yeah, a long time ago I got saved. Like, what do you, what? what? Like, especially for like people who are not familiar with Christianese. Like, you just imagine them being like, saved, like, what are they talking about? You know, like, you were in danger of some sort. I am unfamiliar with the situation, right? Like, it's very confusing terminology that we use, and yet it is biblical, right? I'm saved. What we mean when we say people are the unsaved or they're not saved, what does it mean? And this might not be true of all these statements, but it seems to me that we use them in reference to being saved from sin, destruction, and, and I think more than anything else, hell. That's what most Christians are talking about, saved from hell, saved from hell. And we throw those terms around a lot. And Paul definitely makes that connection in his writing that we have been saved from judgment, we have been saved from wrath. But it's interesting to note that when Jesus uses this term, it is always in the context of something dear that is lost. Turn to Luke chapter 15, if you have a Bible this morning. Read along with me, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious leaders of that day, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and even eats with them. Remember, to eat with someone in those days was to befriend them. It was to associate with them, especially because of the cleanliness laws that the Jews had. This was what you did only with the dearest friends and with family. You would only do it with people that you said, I'm with these people, right? So, verse 3, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he come, comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quick the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what, what do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Probably, man, one of the most beautiful package of parables that Jesus ever told. It's interesting, when Jesus is telling these stories, he is talking about how certain lost things are of great value. So much so that we diligently seek, search, and anticipate their return. When things are lost, God is searching diligently going after them, or God is waiting with desperate anticipation in reuniting with the lost thing. Think about that. When something is lost, God is waiting with desperate anticipation for reuniting and reconciling, or he is going after the lost thing. And what Jesus is saying in parabolic language is that when people are lost, God is coming after them. He is coming to save. And this is the way that Scripture speaks about salvation, or excuse me, at, at least in the Gospels. God is coming to seek and save what is lost because it is dear to his heart. So these stories are not about how things get lost, how people get lost. They're not even about how not to get lost, right? This isn't Jesus' point. His point is that when things get lost, it deeply affects the heart of God. 
And he comes looking for that lost thing. Remember last week we talked about our culpability in sin. We have, we're all sinned against sinners. And Jesus uses the term sinner in the application of the parable of the lost sheep. But the term here does not refer to a rebel or our inner warpedness or twistedness. This word means failure. This word means to miss the mark. This word means to get it wrong. It means to be lost. It's not a term of blame, but it is a term of observation. It's like Isaiah. Remember when he says, we are all like sheep wandering off, losing our way. And so Jesus isn't saying, oh, the sheep, the stupid sheep, it got lost, right? Stupid wandering sheep. What is it doing? Dumb, bleeding sheep, right? Like the way that we probably, the way that I would definitely treat a sheep. Um, He isn't, I mean, obviously there is no fault of the coin, is there? Stupid coin, getting lost again. Always getting lost, you coin. Like it's just like, that's not a thing, right? But interesting, he isn't even focusing on the sin of selfishness of the son. And it's there. We could definitely exegete this passage. And we could look at all the things, the rebellion, the selfishness in the heart of the son. But Jesus doesn't go into any of that. He is not telling us how things get lost, why they get lost. He isn't even telling you how not to get lost. He's not heaping judgment on lost people. He's saying again that these stories are about the heart of God. When things are lost, the character of God is to go after lost things. I love that. James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, so often we consider these parables from the point of view of the lostness of the sinner. We think of the misery of the sheep, the hopeless condition of the coin, poor coin, or the degradation of the son, right? But Jesus begins not with the object's loss, but with the loss sustained by God. In these parables, we see the feelings of God toward the sinner. He is anxious about each one and will go to great efforts to regain them. I love that. Remember last week, we talked about faith. Remember, we had that long description of what faith is. Faith is, you know, taking your lame friend up on a roof because you can't get to Jesus dismantling this roof and lowering him down without killing him so he can be healed by Jesus. Powerful but long description of faith. Removing every obstacle to get to Jesus. But do we ever think of the flip side? Do we ever think of Jesus moving through every obstacle to get to us? Of God moving through every obstacle to find people? You Think about the story of Legion. You guys familiar with that story? Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. He goes through some crazy storm to get there. And then he comes to the other side to find one man. The story goes on. We're told in the end that the rest of the people in that region are so freaked out by Jesus and how he's healed this man that they ask him to leave. And so Jesus really has come, crossed land and sea, this crazy storm to get to one man to bring them into the kingdom of God. Last, uh, last week, two weeks ago, I was up in Seattle sharing at a pastor conference, and um, my dear friend Jordan, he was teaching, and he was talking about the story of the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And he was talking about, remember in the beginning, <clears throat> they walk into this area, and the disciples see this man born blind, and they say, 
Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, in that culture, they had all of these different ideas about what brought about deformity. It was the sin of the parents. It was the sin in utero. They had all these different theories, and they had very similar things like karma, like you didn't you know, you didn't get involved in those things. This might be the judgment of God on that person, so you don't want to interfere with that. And so they have all of these religious and cultural obstacles that the disciples, the religious leaders, their culture had set up, and Jesus is just like moving through all of these just to get to one man who desperately needs saving. See, this is the heart of our God. And we see this all throughout Scripture. He is the heart of the shepherd. This is what God says in Ezekiel. He rebukes the worthless shepherd who have used the flock to serve themselves, who have eaten the flock rather than led and fed it. And he says, I myself will come and I will shepherd my sheep. The heart of God is that he will leave 99 to go after one. Apparently, God isn't very good at math. But that is the heart of God. Now, Luke emphasizes the context of these stories. Why is Jesus telling us these stories? So often we miss this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees, remember, the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel, mutter, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them these stories. So even among good, moral, righteous people, there's always a group of outsiders that are under suspicion. We often conclude that some people are beyond God's grace. There are people that God can't even save. And I don't know what your theology is, whether you're Calvinist, Arminian, whether you are a Calminian like myself, right? Nobody caught that? Okay. Somewhere in the middle. But I don't know what you think, but maybe just people that God can't save, people that God won't save, people that God doesn't care about saving, people who are too far gone to be saved, the deserving or undeserving sinner. But this group, these leaders, these teachers of Israel, had this view of this group that is flocking to Jesus, a group of tax collectors. Now, it's really hard for us to, like, create a cultural understanding, I think, about tax collectors. What are tax collectors like in our day and age? Maybe they're like the bankers who caused the 2008 crash, right? People who thought only about, oh, this is my opportunity to get rich, and didn't think about all the people who would suffer, lose their jobs, lose their houses, lose millions, thousands of dollars, all the people that lost, all they thought about were themselves, Well, these were like the tax collectors of Jesus' day. They were traitors to the nation of Israel because they worked for their Roman oppressors. And they were paid nothing, so they would exact more from their Jewish brothers and sisters so that they could get rich. But then prostitutes who lived in gross violation of the laws, sexual ethics of the Mosaic law. What would we liken that today? I know today, yes, we still do feel sorry for prostitutes. We, we see it as wrong that people are put into this situation. But I think today we have more sympathy for prostitutes than we do disdain. We do wrath. But what about pedophiles? I'm pretty sure that our culture 
across the board still agrees that this is horrific, that this is vile, that this is disgusting. Most people would think that these people should either be shot or put in prison for life. So there's still like this like visceral, guttural like feeling when we hear things about pedophilia, when we hear things about rape. And I would say these are the prostitutes of Jesus' day. The people that are the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. And by associating with those, who in this room would associate with a pedophile or a rapist? Knowingly. Oh, it's cool, I'm not into that, but they are, so it's cool. No, no, of course not. These are the people that Jesus is hanging out with. These are the people that Jesus is having dinner with and associating with. Really, I mean, there is no other cultural crossover. And I know that that, it should bother us. It should bother us. These religious leaders grumble. This crowd does not reflect well on this rabbi. He is teaching our law. He is one of our religious teachers. We do not like this. Why? Because Jesus is muddying the waters of holiness and godliness in their minds. And Jesus, knowing what's going on, tells them a story. Three stories, in fact. In the first parable, right, of the lost sheep, how the shepherd leaves the 99 to look for one. And when he returns with the lost sheep, he invites his friends to celebrate with him. And then Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin and how the woman looks for it, sweeping and cleaning her house. And when she finds it, She calls all her friends together to celebrate with her because what was lost is now found. Then Jesus tells a third story about a lost and wasteful son who eventually returns home and is embraced and reinstated in the family by his father with a fatted calf, with celebration, with robes, clean robes, right? So as we read or listen to these stories, you might have noticed that in the first two stories, someone goes out Looking, someone searches diligently for that which is lost. But by the time we come to the third story, we hear the plight of the lost son, we are expecting someone to go out and look for him. But no one does. Which is incredible. See, Israel put a high value on sons, a very high value on sons. You think about the patriarchs. They are the 12 sons of Jacob. A high value on sons. And we have a sheep that's looked for. We have a coin that is searched diligently for. But a son, no one will look for. This is supposed to jar us. In Jewish and Eastern cultural, excuse me, in Jewish and Eastern culture, The responsibility of the care of the family would fall to the elder son, the firstborn son. But in this story, he is totally silent, that is, until the younger brother comes home. Edmund Clowney, who was a um, professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, he tells this true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during Vietnam. And when the family couldn't get any word of him through any of the official channels, the older son flew to Vietnam and, risking his life, searched the jungles and battlefields for his lost brother. And it's said that despite the danger, he was never hurt. And this is why, because the armies on both sides heard his story. 
and they agreed to not molest him, hurt him, harm him in any way because they were in awe of his dedication and respected his quest. This man became to be known as the brother. The brother. He is the quintessential brother who goes out seeking that which is lost. And so that story speaks to what the older brother in this story should have done. He should have been the one to go out looking for his lost brother, taking upon himself the cost of his own life and inheritance to bring him home. Now we call this parable the prodigal son, don't we? Anybody ever call it the parable of the two sons? Not really. It's the parable of the prodigal son. You say the parable of the two sons, like, which one's that? I've never heard that one before. This parable, I would say, actually isn't about the prodigal son. That's not the focus. The focus is actually on the other brother. Of course, there is so much that we can learn from the wasteful son. We can learn about the unfailing, gracious, generous love of the father. But we often fail to see what else is going on in this parable. And it's between the father and the older brother. And in fact, this is why Jesus tells this story. In this story, it is not only the younger brother who is lost. Both sons are lost. How do I mean? Well, the first son lived a life of rebellion to his father. He was suspicious of his father's intentions and the family way of life. He thought he knew better. He could figure it all out on his own. But he ended up lost, and he was shocked when the father graciously and generously restored him to his place, running to receive him, embracing him, kissing him, putting the family ring on his finger and garments on him. And of course, as we know, slaughtering the fatted calf in order to celebrate his return. But the second son, the older brother, is equally shocked by his father. How could he receive the younger brother so readily, bending the rules, freely forgiving him, marring the family name and reputation, and incurring more financial loss by bringing him back in? The older son cannot believe the love of the father. It's appalling to him. For he has always kept the rules and done what is right. And he says this, You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. You can hear the disgust. You can hear the anger. But listen to the father. My son, you are always with me, and everything that I have belongs to you. There is a relational disconnect in the story. Son, I'm right here. I've always been here, and you have always lived in my house. How did you not know my heart? How did you not know that you could ask any time, and I would have given you a fatted calf for celebration. I would have given you anything. You're my son. All that I have is yours. 
See, this older son, though he has kept the rules and done everything right, he is outside of the love of the Father. He also is lost. He is not home. He is not really with the Father. He is far from home. He's lost. Disconnected from the heart of the Father. And because the older brother has had the wrong ideas about the Father... He has disdain for his younger brother, but he himself has also been kept from enjoying the blessing and riches of this relationship. Now remember, Jesus told these parables in response to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, murmuring, grumbling, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The point is this. These religious leaders, these self-righteous people, these shepherds of Israel don't get how generous and gracious God really is. And it shows in their disdain for others. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Char, it's, it's a little more complex than that. I would agree. It is absolutely more complex than that. These people are real sinners, rebels, not just victims, people who have done wrong and evil, people who, like we mentioned last week, have rebelled against God, live selfishly, but they are also lost. Blind is another term that scripture uses for them. Broken, hurt, wandering, and ignorant. It's complex. And it's no wonder Jesus used the story of a father and a child to relate to the complexity. Because I don't know if outside of that dynamic we can really understand God's compassionate heart. It's really easy to be self-righteous about rebels not deserving forgiveness and grace. About those, well, you made your bed, you better lie in it. All the ways that somebody could help themselves, all the ways that somebody could help themselves in order to help other people, right? Be a human who contributes to society, be a real person, right? How many of us have that sympathy? Maybe we look at what's going on on our borders, maybe we look at what's going on with immigration, maybe we look at a many different areas in politics and we have that sentiment and it's really hard to not have that sentiment towards people that we feel are in the wrong unless we understand the father heart of God how can you have grace and compassion for someone evil someone totally selfish someone who takes from others in order to serve themselves someone who would sexually abuse someone else and do these just deviant things Well, what if it is your child who has done these things? You imagine, just for a moment, the brokenness that you would feel, that just, you would just be being pulled in so many different ways. And this is just a small picture into the heart of God. Remember that passage in the Old Testament where God says, Israel, I will punish you for your sins. You have played the whore and you have gone after many other gods. You have colluded with unrighteousness and injustice and I will hand you over. And then in the next sentence he says, oh, Israel, how can I give you up? How can I do this to you? See, I have carved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls of Jerusalem are ever before me. We see the complexity of God's heart in the Old Testament. He hates sin because of what it has done to his world. He hates injustice and unrighteousness, but how he loves the lost. 
how he feels towards the wandering, towards the blind, towards the weak. And God says that every single one of us are that complex. We are sinned against sinners. And God's heart towards us is not to say, screw it. Let them rot. They made their bed. They're going to lie in it. But it is to say, something is lost. I will go looking for it. Something is lost. I will turn the whole house upside down and inside out until I find it. It is only as we understand the heart of a parent that we can really begin to understand the complex grace and justice of God. Is it any wonder then that Father was Jesus' favorite title for God? For many of us, the reason we judge others harshly and wrongly, the reason we think people are beyond God's salvation, his care, his grace, is because we really don't understand the depth of his graciousness, the depth and generosity of our God, of our Father. We have judged him wrongly. Our assessment of him is wrong, which, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, keeps us hinders us. It stifles us. We are kept out of the love of the Father because we, in some way, shape, or form, are suspicious of him, and we end up lost. We can't go to the shepherd. We're suspicious. Does God really love me? Will God really forgive me? Will God really graciously give me all things? We don't really think the Father loves us. There must be some catch. We know ourselves. Can God really love us that much? And in a world and culture that is full of younger brothers, a world full of lost sinners, what will keep us from being religious Pharisees, self-righteous older brothers, and harsh, judgy people is the gracious, gracious love and salvation of God found only through the gospel. Listen to this. Jesus. Jesus is the true and greater older brother who went out looking for us, who gladly spent his inheritance, not just risking his life, but giving his life in order to bring us into the incredible, generous, and gracious love of the Father. Jesus is the only true Savior who came to seek and save what is lost. And this is the character of Christ, to save, to seek and save what is lost. And I I think this goes back to our previous studies about redemptive participation. Remember we talked about how when God looks at the world, we see a world that is waiting to be judged. When God looks at the world, he sees a world waiting to be redeemed. He sees a world of lost sons, a world of lost daughters that he is wanting to bring into the family. He desires to rescue and save lost people. And in going back to studies, if we are disciples of Jesus, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what he did, that means that we also, like Jesus, will be out looking for lost people. That's the heart of God's people. 
We don't care what color, shape, size, or baggage it comes with. Are they lost? That's the question of the gospel. So that means also when we see the world, when we see people, when we see our neighbor, sinners, people on the left and people on the right, we see lost sons and daughters that God wants to bring home. In closing, think about the story of Zacchaeus. We read it as we started our teaching this morning. Jesus in this story is doing, again, what he loves to do. He's moving past all the cultural opinions and red tape on either side about this undeserving person, this sinner, in order to save him. It's amazing what Jesus will do to reach one person, isn't it? I think you could probably think about your story and what he did, what he rescued you from. Apparently, Jesus will turn the whole house upside down and inside out. He'll leave the 99 to find the one. He'll spend his inheritance and risk his life for the younger brothers. He'll cross heaven and earth. He'll even go through death and come out the other side in order to rescue what is lost. This is why we call Jesus the Savior. And as it turns out, Zacchaeus knew he needed saving. And as it turns out, that's really what we need. That's all we need to receive Jesus' salvation. To be saved, to have him as our Savior. That's it. Do you know you're lost? Do you know you were blind? Do you know that apart from Jesus, there is no other hope? Do you know you're lost? Well, here's the good news for all of us. Whether we have been with Jesus for a long time, whether we've been away from Jesus for a long time, or whether this is the first time we've ever even heard anything about Jesus the Savior, Jesus wants to bring us home. Back to the Father. To bring us into the love of the Father. To give us the presence of his Spirit. To give us a solid identity. As a beloved son who the Father says, all that I have is yours. He wants to put the family ring on your finger, clothe you in a robe of righteousness, and celebrate over your rescue. For all we like sheep were going astray. We were lost, but because of God's gracious salvation through Jesus, we have been found and brought home to the Father. Lord, as we turn now, Lord, from this word, this word of your salvation, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would turn toward you. Lord, we pray as we move into this time of responding. Lord, that we would not leave off this word. Lord, I believe that this word is directly for people in this room. You are lost. 
Whether you have known Jesus your whole life, you are lost. And he wants to bring you home, truly home, to settle you, to root you in the family of God. And pray for those, Lord, who have strayed, who are like lost sheep, Lord, who are far from you. We pray, Lord, that you would turn them back to you this morning. And Lord, we pray for all of us, Lord, that we would begin to understand and fathom the depth of mercy of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, Lord, as we look out, not just on our world, but as we look out on our county, on our city, Lord, that has many deviant people, Lord, many people who are rebels against you, Lord, many who are mockers and scoffers of Jesus or Christianity or any idea of salvation. Lord, those who are running from you, Lord, would we see lost sheep? Lord, would we see lost sons, lost daughters? Lord, would you bring us home in order, Lord, that we can bring others home? Give us that heart of the shepherd, of the Savior. Lord, as we go out, Lord, to the metaphorical highways and byways of our town, give us that heart of the Savior to eat, to drink with those who are far from the kingdom in order to bring them home. Lord, do a new and a fresh work in your church. And Lord, would that spread to this city and this county, we pray.